4, 8 through 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything <clears throat> worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> morning. It's a pleasure to be able to be with you again, especially with this uh, beginning of the Advent season. It's just always a joy to remember what God has done for us and to be able to begin this season of waiting with a hopeful anticipation, not a hope that easily is fleeting as if we, we wish, man, it'd be nice if this would work out, but a hope and confidence knowing what God has done for us and then able to stand even now in the present moment on those things. Um, if we haven't met yet, my name is Drew Wilkins. I'm one of the pastors on staff here along with Nathan and Harrison. Um, and it's a privilege to be able to be bringing God's word to you. Uh, I wanted to take just a quick moment to do a little bit of an update. We've been um, tracking with you guys and we communicated very well the need that one of my children had for a heart surgery that was coming. Um, that happened at the end of last month. We got him back home three weeks ago. He is doing wonderfully. He was five months old. He's pinker and louder and noisier and more active than he's ever been. And it's wonderful. So thank you so much for your prayers. Uh, we truly appreciate it. It's uh, hard to start someplace new with an immediate need like that. But it's been beautiful in that it's opened up ways to lean on and rest on you all even before we know all of you all that deeply. And honestly, beautiful as a way to re-enter with those of you whom we do already know. Uh, but with that in mind, and that said, let's turn our hearts and our minds back again to our text. Because even as this is an Advent sermon, it also comes on the whole of what we've been looking at through the book of Philippians. And let me remind us a little bit of the context of what we're doing. The book of Philippians was written by a pastor who is a regional pastor to a region of churches. And he's writing to them because he's been gone for a while and he wants to touch base and he wants to encourage them and honestly, just because he loves them. The book of Philippians is a little unique in that there's just such a sweetness in the relationship between the churches that he's writing to and the author, Paul himself. Um, in this, what he's speaking to them is about joy that characterizes their relationship, but it's not a joy that's just the easy joy of easy times. It's joy in the midst of suffering and struggle. And Paul's able to say that because he himself has been imprisoned, he's arrested, he's in a jail cell, and life is hard. That's kind of the worst case scenario for many. And for many of those that he's writing to, they're also fearing their own worst case scenarios or fearing the hard times or just in the midst of the challenge that can come from being a countercultural person living kind of going upstream against the world around them. So as he speaks to them and as he speaks of joy, this is not platitudes to kind of smooth over or cover or hide the challenge, but it's actually because of the challenge that he's speaking to them these words of joy and these words of comfort. Um, in the book so far, we've gone through, like I said, identifying struggle. 
Um, the book of Philippians talks about the ways that even in the midst of these struggles, even in the midst of this worst case scenario, that God's goodness and the message of his love continues to roll forward and to roll through. And we've looked at the ways that um, the way of righteousness is the way of humble servitude, that the way to grow in the kingdom of heaven is not by exalting yourself or building up your own path of holiness or trying to lord your authority or your accomplishments over those around you, but it's actually to say, no, I'm gonna humble myself, even to the extent of humiliating myself, to associate myself with those who would be the most lowly, to associate myself as Christ himself did with those who are most in need, who have the least amount to stand on, who have the least righteousness to claim of their own. And instead say, no, I'm just a billboard of brokenness for the one whose righteousness can cover all sins and the one whose goodness can take me even in the darkness, as we considered from Isaiah, and give me the joy of great light, even though, even though, might not have tasted the fullness of it yet. Chapter three, the focus of the letter turns towards saying, his righteousness is enough. We don't have to stand on our righteousness to do these things, but rather his goodness is our foundation. And in chapter four, verse one, we get this intro. Therefore, my brothers, because of all of what he said, he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love, and long for my joy and my crown. You can just hear the affection rolling through this letter. He says, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. And so the thus is what we've been looking at this last week and this week. Because of this goodness of God, which rolls forward even in the midst of challenge, stand firm in these ways. Um, we looked at uh, the call to agreement and the call to rejoice last week. Agreement not in a way that eliminates our diversity, but actually in the midst of unity gives us the beauty of diversity that then enables us to rejoice in all of what God has done. And today what we're gonna look at is this call to think and practice. How do we stand firm in those things? But in these ways, verses eight through nine, as we had read for us already. I'm gonna read them again just because they're brief because they're beautiful, and then I'm gonna pray for us. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So Lord God, even as we come before you this morning, we are mindful of our need in all of these things. We are mindful of the ways that we do not have enough of our own peace, but instead we delight to come to you and say you are our peace. Even as we have a lack of truth, a lack of honor, a lack of justice, a lack of purity, a lack of loveliness, a lack of what is commendable, of excellence, of praiseworthiness, Lord, you are the source of it all. And so with that in mind, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see as we come before you to meet you, even you, personally, in your word. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Uh, thinking through this passage and how to approach it, uh, a story came to mind 
um, of when I was a teenager with uh, Sam Mitchell and Matt Rolsma and my brother Chris. And we went out, uh, we found a way to go caving. And we were tunneling through one of these caves. I mean, if you've ever been caving, there's a beautifulness to caving in which there is absolutely the terrifying absence of light. I mean, if you go into a dark room on a dark night, and you close the windows, and then you kind of close your eyes, and then you open them, then you can kind of have that darkness, which feels kind of like it. But if you wait for 30 seconds or so, your eyes begin to adjust, and the darkness kind of fades, and that one light on your printer then lights up the whole room, or you know how it is. But in a cave, there's no printers. There's no night lights. There's no street lamps. It's just black. And there's a weird and even terrifying nature to that. Um, but on this particular caving trip, we were going and we were tunneling and we were going and we were going and then suddenly there, there was a long tunnel ahead of us but we, we had our headlamps off because they didn't really matter because it was just a tunnel so we're just going straight. And we're crawling because it's a narrow one. Uh, but, but suddenly you can start to see the walls and then you could start to see kind of that way down the passage, you could see the corner. And that was because there was a light going. So we, we pressed on and we kept going and we kept going and we could kind of navigate a little bit more clearly with that light. And we rounded the corner and, and up above us, we must have been pretty shallow because there was about a dime-sized hole where the sunlight was breaking through. And that sunlight lit up that whole section, but it didn't just light up that section. It like went around the corner and then went a good 100 yards back down the cave where we had been initially crawling. And that light shined right in. And I want to begin with that imagery because when Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Um, I'm mindful of this because I know how this passage can be used. This passage can be used to do the whole thing of, oh, well, we should remove ourselves from the world. Uh, you shouldn't listen to that non-Christian music. Uh, you should be careful around those people over there because they're not like us. They're not necessarily honorable or commendable or, or holy or certainly not pure. And we, that's who we are to be. And so we have to remove ourselves from those people. We have to keep ourselves separate from those things. And we have to live this secluded, cloistered life. And that's just not at all what Paul is talking about here. In fact, it, it's the exact opposite we fix our eyes on the light, not as a way to deny the darkness, but because we are in the very midst of it. It's not to fool ourselves to think that we can be removed from it. It's because we are crowded in it. The light is a surprise. And Paul has no false ideas about what that means. Now, when we talk about caving, this makes sense. In the darkness, you look at the light and you go, oh, thank goodness, okay, I can see this, I can see that, I can keep going on. Um, but in real life, it functions a little bit differently. Uh, in real life, we are very familiar with the darkness. Weirdly, the darkness is what we know. The darkness is what we're comfortable with because it's familiar. And in our state of separation from God and brokenness because of sin, even those of us who have been reunited with him in Christ the darkness 
the darkness can sometimes be our friend. And the light then becomes almost scary because if we trust it, what if it then disappears? If we do that dramatic risk of hope, isn't this what Isaiah was talking about in our call to worship? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of Yahweh of hosts will do this. Imagine the hope that this brings. Why does God tell us these things? Why does Paul tell us to set our minds on these things? Because these are the very things that we don't have on our own. Because our problem is that we set our minds on the darkness. But God does not leave us there. In his beautiful, boundary-crossing provision for us, God sets his mind, the source of all of these things, on us. In our sin, the opposite of all of these things. You see, this is who Jesus is. He is the light that has entered into our tunnels. It's not that we are breaking through and finding the light on our own. Rather, the God of all creation shines his goodness down into the darkness so that it goes through the rock, filling up the cavern, around the corner, and 100 yards down the cave to those who are just crawling and scrambling their way through. We fix our eyes on the light not because we would deny the darkness, but because we are in the midst of it. And so the call of this passage is to then follow the light. So what does that mean? Well, our text, I think, helps us understand it. Um, let's look again at verse 8. The first thing that it means is that we face the darkness. And I'll be up front. That is one of the most terrifying, soul-shaking things that we can do. Because how many of us have things in our history, things we have done, things others have done against us, that we would rather just lock in that dark closet and never open that door ever again? Because if we truly look at that, we will see that no matter what our best versions of ourselves we would put forward, we actually don't have much of what is true. We don't have much of what is honorable. We don't have much of what is just, and so on and so forth. But Paul tells us, even in the midst of that, fix our eyes on these things. Again, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Um, I'd turn us back to the book of John, one of my favorite sections. I reference this probably too much if you could reference scripture too much, but I don't think you can, so I'm going to lean into it. Um, John, 
when he writes the gospel to introduce who Jesus is, he describes him this way. He says in chapter one, verses four through five, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, when we think about those dark closets that we have, we're tempted to think, oh, this is what will separate us. This is what disqualifies me. This is what ends my communion, my relationship with God. And the, the reality is that's true. That does. And yet, this is who Jesus is. He is the one who entered in even when we didn't have these things. And the darkness does not then become an obstacle to God's love. It becomes the very thing that hastens him towards us. It is what qualifies us for relationship with God. It is the thing that draws him to our side. Our lack of these things and the fact that we are yet in the darkness is not that which would separate us from God, but rather it's what qualifies us to come to him. Um, I I want you to think of it this way. Uh, I, I hate horror movies. Uh, Not I'm saying they're evil. I think they're actually beautiful in ways that cause us to reckon with evil. Um, We can get into that. That's a whole other conversation. Uh, But a a horror movie or a scary movie is scary all the way up until you see the monster. Up until that point, it's get away. It's hide. It's escape. It's just try to survive. But suddenly... Once you've figured out what that alien is that's crawling through the spaceship, once you've figured out what rune it was that unlocked the portal or whatever, well then the narrative shifts. And now you're no longer trying to escape, but you're studying the weaknesses. You're figuring out how to engage. You're finding out where you need help, and then you're tackling the issue. This also stands true in us when Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What he's calling us to do, again, is not deny the darkness, but it's to stop, is to root ourselves in Jesus Christ, the one who provides all of our light, and then to boldly turn and look the darkness square in the face. Why? Because that's what he did. That's what he does. And that's what he does for us. Let me anchor this down a little bit more clearly. I am an incredibly defensive person. I would love to deny that. And we can lightheartedly say, well, just talk to my wife and she'll tell you. <laughs> and that's true, she would. But, but that's true, like she would because it's really true and I fight ugly. And I hate to hear the things that she, the most qualified person in the world, would gently bring to me. I hate to hear it, and I can think of 10,000 reasons why she's guilty of the same, or worse, the things that she's guilty of then disqualifies her from being able to tell me all the things that I'm guilty of. I, I am an angry person on the inside. Now, you might not guess that getting to know me, but that's because I'm a massive people pleaser. I want you to love me in ways that supplants my trusting that God loves me. And so in that, I hide my anger and my bitterness and my frustration deep down. And I feel naked and I feel ashamed when it comes boiling out because it does. 
I am a lustful person. One of my friends put it so eloquently years ago when we were teenagers, he said, I have a problem. I like women. We thought, well, that's not necessarily a problem. And he said, well, well, you don't understand. I have a girlfriend, but I like women, plural. Uh, I have that problem. I have to work hard to keep my eyes where they should be. I'm tempted to look things up I should never look up. It takes an active redirection of my will, trusting on Christ himself to bring new light into my darkness. The list goes on, but if bitterness, defensiveness, anger, and lustfulness to a shameful extent is not enough, well, come talk to me and I'll tell you more because that is my darkness. But in Christ, we are called to set our eyes on these things, not as a way to deny that that's there in our life again, but to remember, even so, even there, nothing can separate us from the love of God. A great light has shone, and we are given the Prince of Peace. And so, let me ask you, where is your darkness? What would you rather turn your eyes from? Where would you discount yourself, disqualify yourself, and pull yourself back out from the love of God? Turn it. Sorry, turn to it. Face it. Get to know it. <clears throat> then even more, um, tell it to your neighbor. Invite them to know it. Confess it. And don't make any apology. Don't make any defense. Just sit in it. I don't know who that is. If that's your, your sister, your dad, your literal next door neighbor, the person on the other end of the pew. Because when we do that, then that makes space for them to share their darkness. And then together we can put our arms around each other's shoulders and say, yes, and praise God for the light. Praise God for what is true, what is honorable, what is just, what is pure, what is lovely, what is commendable, excellent, worthy of praise, because in him we are not left in the darkness. And in him we have real life. We have real light. Shining the light on our darkness takes away our shame. It, is no, it no longer has to be hidden, but it can be brought into the light and healed. Um, secondly, even as we would face the darkness, this text tells us that we can hold fast to the light. And, and I don't mean this in like the, the platitude ways, like the, you know, we all know the, the cute posters of the kitten that's kind of dangling and it says, hang in there, you know, there's light, you could be okay. Or in, you know, the ways that happen so easily on social media, there's like a scenic picture, probably including ducks in a sunset. They usually make their way in there. And it just says, choose joy, as if that's all that it took. You just have to be like, well, I'm sure a mess, but you know what? I'm just going to be happy about it right now. Now, this gives us something so much deeper because it's not our light. If it were our light, well, we are done because we are stuck in the cave. And if we would lean on the light of others around us, wonderful, but guess what? They're stuck in the cave too. <laughs> and if we would say, well, perhaps the whole flow of history is making us better, well, then that just reveals that you are not a very good student of history. We need a light beyond ourselves. And here in Christ, we have it. 
oh, you can look at these wonderful things briefly. You can point to so many sections of Scripture. But here I'd turn us to Romans chapter 5, even just verse 5. Well, actually, I'll back it up to verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Hello, Philippians. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We have a light that extends beyond our own wisdom, and so even in the midst of the darkness, even in that dark closet of your soul, even when you look at politics, when you look at the world around you, when you look at the whole flow of history and say, good God, what is going on? This is a mess. We can say, yes, but I have the light of Jesus Christ who guides me, and that is a light that will not let me down, though I might be crushed in this cave. God's goodness stands firm. Um, in my house, uh, my wife, Lindsay, uh, likes to have a Jesus working in your heart jar. And it's not a, hey, good reward, you've done this, but she's got a glass jar and we've got these brightly colored pom-poms. And as we see our kids starting to change or to grow or to act in kindness towards one another, then we take a pom-pom and we drop it in the jar because we want them to see. I, I know there's all kinds of ways that can go sideways. But we're working hard at it because we want them to see Jesus is working in their hearts. This is not a lighthearted, simple poster of a kitten. This is God himself making us new. This is light in this life, here and now, that is believable and trustworthy and hope-worthy. So as the jar fills up, then we celebrate with something that we can do as a whole family. We go out and get ice cream or we go have fun at a park or we do something that we wouldn't otherwise do because we're seeing Jesus working in our heart. And I want to tell you, in my struggle against sin of my anger, of my defensiveness, of my lust, I'm not saying I'm perfect. In fact, I'd still confess the struggle with you. But I can tell you with joy with hope, with life and light. Jesus is working in my heart. And he's working in yours too. You're not defined by the darkness. Rather, you are his. You are his. Psalm 40, made rightly famous by you too, as well as, you know, just being in the Bible. Um, it has this epic cry in it. You'll be patient with me while I find it. Just the opening verses are worth memorizing, though here I confess I have not. Where the author says, I have waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And this is the call of our heart. Yes, we are still sinners. Yes, we will continue to be sinners. Yes, we, will, we must continue to confess our sin. But brothers and sisters, we have Jesus Christ, God himself made one of us who entered into our darkness, who allied himself with us, who humbled himself even to the point of death, taking our sins and the punishment for all of our darkness, being crushed by it so that we might be then put back up into the sunshine where we belong, 
where we might be then reunited with God our Father and made whole. And sure, we do not have the fullness of that yet. But we will. And even now, we have the Holy Spirit. We have his light at work within us. Put your hope and your trust in Jesus Christ, this life and light. Finally, I turn us to verse 9 of chapter 4 of Philippians where he says, what you have heard and received and heard and seen in me. And briefly, he's not saying again, look at me, I've accomplished all of these things. He's saying, look at me, how I'm a billboard for what God is doing. Look at me who has failed in so many ways and yet God is still working, not just to make me awesome, but, but he has worked through me to bring light and life and love to you. And so trust that. Follow what God is doing. He says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, here's where we have to pause a second and consider it like, this is not practice in a way that we then earn all of this. If we get it good enough, then God will maybe shell out a little bit more. But rather that last line, and the God of peace will be with you is the very thing that gives us hope because brothers and sisters, you are not alone in this struggle. You are not alone. Remember, the light has shone down. It reflects around the corners and it finds even you, wherever you are. The God of peace will be with you. Um, my kids are still young. And so they're easily frightened. They, they don't like to be in sections of the house where no one else is. And so if we're all downstairs and they left their you know, stuffed animal upstairs, they don't want to go get it because they hear noises and they get scared and they're afraid they, they have to turn on the lights and it's dark up there. Um, but then not even me or their mom, but they'll often turn to each other and say, hey, will you come upstairs with me to get my stuffy? And then... And then when they go together, they're brave. They're unafraid. They're emboldened. They're able to do what on their own they cannot do. I mean, the analogy lands. And let me remind you, not only do you have one another sitting alongside you to whisper, to remind, to shout at you sometimes that God is with you, that you are not defined by the darkness, but you are instead a creature of the light, You have God himself, the God of peace, who stands with you and echoes the call that he issued to Joshua himself. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God, not might be with you, but he will be with you. He is with you. His very name is Yahweh, the God who is, the God who is with you, who is present. And if that wasn't enough, we have Jesus Christ himself living died, resurrected, still embodied, sitting next to the Father, defending you, being your advocate, saying, this one is my son, this one is my daughter. Yes, they have plenty of mess, but I have already paid for it. And so now they are welcomed back home. They are made new. They have all the goodness of being part of the family of God. So let me encourage us. When we read this section, 
we are called to consider these things, to fix our eyes on these things, to think about these things. But then we are also called to practice these things as God himself has practiced these things on our behalf. So think about where you most deeply feel the darkness and go. Think about where you most deeply see the darkness in others and draw alongside them. Think about those places where you would most rather not be because, well, it's dark over there and I might get that darkness on me. Um, Those people do these things. Those people behave this way. Their culture values this and that. Not me. I'm like this. I've already got some purity. I've already got some holiness. I've already got some justice. God calls us even there. Why? Because that's where God went. Because that's where we are. And that's where we have to bring his light as well. We fix our eyes on the light. We think about these things, not as a way to escape the darkness, but as a way to equip us for it so that we might nimbly move through it, so that we might then reflect it and shine it to others, and so that we might then, alongside them, confessing and receiving confession, then put our hope in Jesus Christ and follow him through the darkness. And one day, one day into the light. The big idea of this text is that we fix our eyes on the light, not because we would deny the darkness, but because we are in the midst of it. When we would set our minds on the darkness, remember, God has set his mind on you. He set his mind on you. Not just corporately, but like you and me and your kids and that person sitting next to you, or maybe even the person you come to this service so that you don't have to sit next to them in the other service. I'll say that to them too. I don't know. I'm just talking. But because Jesus has been the light that enters into our darkness, we are able to have a joy as we enter in before him and lean on his light. We can follow the light by facing the darkness holding fast to his light, and practicing these things. Why? Not because we're able to do it ourselves, but because the God of peace will be with you no matter where you go. Please pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you and we praise you that while we are lost in darkness, you have given us the greatest of light. And so because of that, we can stand before you looking forward to celebrating Christmas, looking forward to celebrating your coming. Because we have walked in darkness, and God, we are tired of it. And Lord, at the same time, we yet love it. And so God, be our light. Build in us anew what we cannot build in ourselves so that we might bow our knee before you and also proclaim that for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, 
mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Because, Lord, that is exactly what we need. Because you are the light to our darkness. And we praise you that you don't wait for us to come to you. But you shine in towards us, even in our deepest moments of need. It's in your name that we pray all of these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.